You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Continue with the somber uh, trail. We have a text that is not very cheery today. Uh, in fact, it's a text that's usually avoided. <laughs> it's it's a tough text, and this is this is one of the blessings of preaching through the Bible in an expository manner, um, because I don't get to choose what to say right now. I I really don't have control over whether whatever is the next topic. So right now we're going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. And if you're familiar with the text, is is a difficult text to preach. Uh, just for context, <coughs> in the previous chapter, uh, after they are released from being uh, in prison and tried, they are threatened. They go back and with the entire community of believers that now is close to 10,000 people. And they, they, they pray that God will give them more courage to continue to uh, to get in trouble basically uh, preach the gospel and um, God grants them that wish or that request by again filling them with the spirit which is something that could happen repeating repeatedly and um, this is where uh, Luke the author of Acts tells us that this beautiful community that, that shares everything is now birth or now created again. He told us the same thing in, a, in chapter 2. He repeats it in chapter 4. <clears throat> and he's still talking about money. The topic is still money. But now Luke moves on to gives us two different examples of how this life of having everything in common in the church look like. So he gives us two examples. One, one positive example and, and one really, really bad example. So this is where our text begins. <clears throat> today. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verses 36, and all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. And I have titled this, Loving God Leads to Selflessness, and Selfishness Leads to Death. And this is the text. <clears throat> uh, ver uh, verse 36 of chapter 4 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of, pro part of the proceeds of the land? Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain in your own? It remained your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard his words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Who heard it. <clears throat> the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After that interval of about three hours, uh, his wife came in, not knowing what, what had happened. And Peter said to her, 
tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will use uh, me to expound your holy word. I pray that you will challenge us, comfort us, and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Again, a really easy passage to preach. If you don't give money, you're going to die. That's basically the topic of today. Um, I'm just kidding. Let's, let's begin with um, the positive example. And, and what I want to highlight this is how loving God leads to selflessness. So the positive example is Barnabas. <clears throat> he was a mature Christian. He obviously loved his community, uh, and he proved it. Not only with uh, words, he actually showed it with deeds. And in a way, he was someone who loved God, and as a consequence of his love for God, he loved the people around him. And we will see that right now we're talking about the people inside the church, but later on we'll see that he loved the people outside uh, of the church as well. <clears throat> and that love of God led him to be selfless. This is not just what I'm saying or, or withdrawing from this text. In fact, we have a lot of evidences and instances of uh, the life of Barnabas and what kind of man he was. Uh, if you don't know much about Barnabas, you will continue to hear about him. He was a good friend of Paul, but then he was not such a good friend of Paul. But let me give you a little bit of a rundown of who Barnabas is and why I say that he was a selfless man. First, we are introduced in this uh, book to him, like what we just read the introduction to Barnabas. He was a man who sold a field, and his name is Joseph. He's a Levite. He's from Cyprus, and he is in Jerusalem right now. And... <clears throat> He does this. Then in Acts chapter 9, uh, he becomes part of this church, in the church of Jerusalem. And after Paul becomes a Christian, remember, he's uh, on his way to Damascus to try to get other Christians. And, and the, Jesus appears to him. He's blinded. Eventually, he finds his way back to Jerusalem. And he wants to meet with the apostles because he knows that they were right. And he's no longer going to uh, persecute him. But the apostles are scared of him. And nobody wants to talk to Paul. And the only person who actually approaches Paul is Barnabas, and he introduces uh, uh, Paul to the apostles in Acts chapter 9. Then he becomes such an important part of the church that in Acts 11, uh, uh, there's a persecution that arises, and people start going to other places and preach the gospel. And Acts 11 tells us that some Jews that were persecuted left to Antioch, and they started preaching to not only Jews, which was the first thing they did, but they preached to Hellenists or Greeks. And a lot of people started becoming Christians. And the church in Jerusalem heard this. And they were like, okay, Barnabas, go check that out. And Barnabas goes to Antioch, sees that people are believing in Jesus. He spends some time there. He preaches with them. More people become Christian. And then he's like, we need help. So he goes and gets Paul, or back then uh, Saul. And then he brings it to Antioch. And then they start a church in Antioch. 
And then in Acts chapter 11, at the end, there's, there's a need in Jerusalem. There's a famine in the church of Jerusalem, and they collect an offering. And Paul and Barnabas take the offering back to Jerusalem. Then they go back to Antioch, and they are sent out on their first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit says to the church, separate Paul and Barnabas. I have something for them to do. And they are sent in the first missionary journey that Paul has. And they go together. And then they finish that journey together, and they plant many churches and preach the gospel. And in Acts 15, they, he gets in trouble with Paul. He wants to take John Mark, Barnabas, and Paul says, no, he quit, and I don't like that. So Paul takes Silas, and Paul and Silas goes in a different route, and Barnabas takes John Mark, and he goes in a different direction. But later on, we'll see that uh, eventually they, we, we, we infer that they uh, reconciled. And it was good. Instead of having one missionary or one group of missionaries, now we have two groups of missionaries. So this is the life of Barnabas. He was a man who was not just uh, a Christian in word. He actually was very um, unattached from everything. He sold everything he, he had. He moved to Jerusalem. Then he went to Antioch. And then he went to different places. This was Barnabas. Barnabas was a godly man. He lived sacrificially. He loved the unbelievers around him, and he loved his church as well. And he didn't just say it. He proved it with his money, with his time, with his talents, with his efforts. His entire life was given to the church and to others. And my point is that what I believe Luke is trying to tell us is that this love that we say we have should be, should be shown in in actions. We cannot separate loving God from loving others. Christianity is not about concepts. Our faith is not something we just believe. It's something we believe and it moves us to action. It's something that should be shown. And this is something that I, I struggle with personally. Um, as I grew in my faith and as I grew up in my, in my life, uh, I started to believe that my Christianity was about being or believing the right things. And, and there is an element to that. And uh, in our circles today, there is a lot of emphasis on doctrine and, 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 and precise doctrine. And I loved it. Uh, back in uh, probably 13, 14 years ago, uh, after being in charismatic churches for a long time, I discovered this depth and this whole world of theology that was always there. I was just never introduced to it and loved it. And I went all the way in. I was reading and I was uh, going into the complexities of theology and doctrine. And, and, but something started to happen in me is that I started to believe like I was a better Christian than others. So that brought me to starting to argue with people. And back then I was in social media, and you know how it goes. So I was one of those guys. I was one of those annoying, reformed, newly reformed um, guys that was getting on everybody's nerves. And um, thankfully, by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, which usually speaks through my wife, um, <laughs> I decided to remove myself from social media. Uh, by the way, my family, I don't even know. My kids are all with their cousins. I don't know where my wife is. Uh, 
I'm, ask, I'm wondering in myself where, they, where she is. But I feel like sometimes we have this tendency as people, as Christians, to think that our, our faith is about what we believe. It's about concepts. It's about whether I have a personal relationship with Jesus, my own time with God, my service to, to like, use, utilizing my talents. But the reality is that our faith is, is resumed or, 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 or summarized in two things. We should love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. It's, it's as simple as that. And Jesus said the first commandment, or the second commandment is as important as the first one. Jesus never made a difference. Like, okay, well, if you do this, this is, no, he said both go hand in hand. And this is what I believe is happening here, is that these people are uh, receiving the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Spirit, and they automatically start thinking of others. They have been saved by grace, and they can't help themselves but to see others through grace. And in my circles back then, there was a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was all this, but the Holy Spirit was just honestly something that was used to be a show. There was this power of the Holy Spirit and manifestations of the Holy Spirit, but the reality is that there wasn't like real love for others that was birthed out of this Holy Spirit infilling in my life. And, there, and the truth is that, that we must show our faith, our Christianity, by loving others around us. And this is something that we should do inside and also outside of the church. We cannot live as Christians lives that are just consumed with our own matters and affairs. As Christians, our faith should lead us to focus outside of us. Focus on, first on God and then on others. In fact, the Bible does not even talk about you loving yourself. The Bible, the Bible mostly speaks of dying to yourself, and the Bible emphasizing denying yourself. And one of the biggest ways we can show our love for others, deny ourselves, die to ourselves, is sacrificing money especially in a culture like America. I don't know if you realize this, but if you're an immigrant, you probably understand this. The first time you come to America, you're in shock. You cannot believe the amount of stuff. Land, cars, name it. There's, there's a million things here. It's just, it, your jaw just drops. I remember the first time I walked into Costco, I was like, what is this? I, it's just crazy. It's, it's so much. And then you go to people's houses, and they're, they're, they're storages. And then you look at people. I've helped people move. And they have things they didn't even know they had. And they have triple or quadruple of the same. And it's just, <laughs> Patrick is saying, vamos a ir a la casa de Patrick a ver si es cierto. We're going to go to Patrick's house, see if that's true. <laughs> but the reality is that you would think that more or more options would lead you to, like, be maybe more generous. You know, like, well, I have this money. There's all these options. Well, one for you, one for me. But, but the reality is that this abundance creates self-centeredness to a whole new level. And one of the ways... The Bible combats this is by pushing us 
exhorting us to share with others. And I understand that we give our time and our talents and we show up and we all do all the things. But, but right now, this text talks about your material possessions, your money. And the truth is that that's when it hurts. Because I know a lot of people for a fact that will just might as well just give other things except for money. And there's others that will flip it. And they'll just give money f- except uh, getting them bo- involved in other, in other things. But a mature Christian is someone who is generous with their time, their money, their talents, their lives, just like Barnabas. And not someone who just behaves well or knows the right things to say or knows the right theology. In fact, uh, James, who was one of the brothers of Jesus, uh, has this striking uh, section, and, and, and James too, we're going to read it in a second. But he is not very kind to talk about, uh, well, I just have my own personal relationship with Jesus, or like, I believe in Jesus, and that's all that matters. He, he tells us this, James 2, verses 14 to 20. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then he goes there. He goes to the topic. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith, so also faith by itself, it, uh, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And this is what James says. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? There's one litmus test in Christianity. If it's just words, it's not true. Faith apart from works is useless. And then he says at the end of that chapter in verse 26 in James 2, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So I want to encourage us all to look at Barnabas as an example and show our faith to others through generosity and and, and loving the people within our church and also outside of our church. And I think Barnabas is a clear example of, of that. And I believe that that's something that as a church should focus. I don't think we should, we should choose whether we choose theology or right uh, behaviors or loving the other person. It's both. We should do, you should do both. Um, some people put, put, um, do, use the analogy of the gospel as an airplane with two wings. On one wing, we verbalize it, we proclaim it in word, but on the other one, we have to show it. We have to prove it to people. And uh, an airplane without both wings will not fly well. So loving God leads to selflessness. There's a lot of need around us. There's need inside our church, outside of our church, and we must be generous. And I know that sometimes we're going to be like, man, but we can't help everybody. If we do this, we're going to be helping people all the time. And that is absolutely true. It's never going to end. 
There's always going to be poor people and needy people around us. And that's why Paul says to the Galatians, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. When are we going to reap? In heaven. We're storing treasures in heaven. If we do not give up, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to whom? To everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is what's happening here. Barnabas and everyone else, they're giving their money. They're being filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit moves them to actually self-sacrificial love and generosity. So loving God leads to selflessness. But then we move to the negative example. And selfishness leads to death. Let me, let me explain a few things about this text. And I, uh, if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you have questions about it. I grew up not understanding this so long. And I was like, wait, what's happening? Is it because they didn't give, but they did give, but they died? Like, but then Paul, Peter says that you could have used them. It's just confusing to me. So let me, let me just explain a few things. Number one, this couple uh, sells a property and brings some of the money to the apostles, and this is voluntarily, and we will see because Peter actually says you could you could have kept it. So it was up to them whether they gave the entire money or just a portion of the money. They were not obligated in any way to do any of those thi- any of those things. The problem is that they decide to lie about it. So they wanted to give the impression that they sold the property and the property cost less than what they sold it for. Peter tells them in verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? And and in this last part, he's talking about the money. Like if you sold it, you still had the money that you got for it. You could have done whatever you wanted with the money as you could have done whatever you wanted with the property before you sold it. But the issue here is that they agreed to lie about the piece, the price of the property. So as an example, let's say they sold it for 100 and they kept 40 and they said they sold it for 60. So they came and they told the apostles, uh, we sold this property and it, it, we, we have this $60, 60000 whatever back then. And then they uh, gave it to the apostles. And Peter, who is filled with the spirit, immediately knows what's happening. And he confronts them. But let me think, let's think of a few things. They gave a large amount of money to the church. They gave a large amount of money to the church. But the issue here is not money. The issue is the lying. They both lied to the apostles. And by extension, they lied to the church. When Sapphira comes back later, Peter gives her an opportunity to make it right. Peter asks her, did you really sell this property for this much? And she lies so well as well. The real issue here is really bigger than just lying to the apostles. And in fact, Luke makes it very, very clear. Three times he tells us that they did not only lied to the apostles. They lied to the Holy Spirit and to God himself. In verse 3, he says, Satan, fill your heart to lie to 
to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he says explicitly, you have not lied to a man or to man, but to God. And in verse 9, he tells the fire, you have agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord. Number one, notice again the insistence on the Holy Spirit. Everything that's happening here has to do with the Holy Spirit. They're moved by the Holy Spirit, and these people are lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God himself. But why is it that Paul, uh, Luke is saying that they lie to God? Because this is what the Bible clearly teaches. When we sin, when we lie, when we steal, when we cheat, whatever we do, when we sin, we not only affect others or ourselves, we are directly offending God himself. Sin is a direct rebellion against God. So one of the, one of the uh, uh, teachings of this text is that we, in fact, sin against God every time we sin. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. In Exodus 10, the Egyptian pharaoh repents to Moses after several plagues, and he actually calls Moses in, and he says, I have sinned against your God. He understood that. In Joshua 7, Achan takes part of the loot that he was not supposed to take. Israel cannot win any, 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 any battles. Something is happening, and he gets caught. And he repents, and he says that he sinned against God. In Genesis 39, Joseph uh, was sold as a slave uh, under Potiphar's, Potiphar's, is that how you say it? Potiphar's house? And his wife is trying to uh, sleep with him. And he actually tells the wife, I am not going to sleep with you because I don't want to sin against God. And then, uh, and uh, uh, Megan just read this in Psalm 51, David cheats with another woman who was married, kills the husband. And then he's confronted by Nathan and he comes in and he, uh, David writes this psalm, and he says, against you have I sinned. He recognizes that the sin was not against Bathsheba, or it was, but it wasn't only to them. It was against God. So, I want to remind us that every time we sin, we are not only hurting ourselves, hurting our family, that's typically what we think of, right? Well, I'm not going to do this because this is going to affect my family. Or I'm not going to do this because this is going to get me in trouble. And, and, and those are true statements. The reality is that we should always be aware that every time we sin, we are sinning against God. We are offending God. We are uh, in, in enmity with God every time we sin. I believe that the issue here is not money. I believe that the issue here is not only greed. Is that they are putting themselves before everyone else. I think this is a combination of greed with hypocrisy. They want it to be seen as something that they were not. Think of this for a moment. They, everyone in the church was giving and giving, bringing their possessions and selling their possessions. And they were looking at this thousands of people doing this. And they saw it happen. And they probably thought, we can't 
we have to do something. They're going to say that we're horrible. Like, look, everybody's selling. Like, the, the, look at the gates. Look at what they did. Uh, they brought a car. And look at the Lunsfords. They, they just sold their house. Like, and, and they're like, well, what are we going to do, Carla? And then and they're just like, well, we have to. I, I'm the pastor. I don't know. I, 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 that's how I'm imagining they're, they're thinking. And so they, they plot. And they say, well, why don't we just sell this and, and just give a portion? And we say we, sell, we sold it. And what the problem was is that <clears throat> in an environment where everyone was so selfless, they couldn't come up to be like that, so they had to fake the selflessness. They wanted to appear as if they were as godly as the other people or Barnabas. So their selling of the property wasn't motivated, motivated by a genuine love for others. It was motivated by a, by a selfish desire to show themselves as godly. This is exactly what Jesus tells us not to do in, in Matthew. He says that every time you give to the needy, do not blow the trumpet when you give to the needy. And this is exactly what they're doing. And they lied. So the sin behind their lies and hypocrisy is selfishness. They are only thinking of themselves. They don't genuinely care about others. They are willing to lie. They're, they're, they're being greedy. They are willing to pretend and give an appearance in order to gain approval and admiration. And the reality is that living selfishly is living sinfully. Living a life that only revolves around what you want, what you need, what your desires are, is sinful. Because the essence of sin is self-centeredness. At the bottom, at the center of sin is you, and it's all about you. Ananias and Sapphira were selfish. And this is exactly the essence of sin. I always use them. You've probably already heard me say this several times. I love John Stott's definition of sin. And I, I want you to uh, remember it if you can. Sin is a revolt of the self against God. The dethronement of God with a view of the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. Every time we do what we want because we consider that it's better, because we think that God doesn't understand or that that is too extreme or that maybe that's just we should probably interpret it in a different way. What we, when we're doing all those things, what we're doing is we're just thinking of ourselves. And again, the Bible calls us to die to yourself, to deny yourself, to count others more significant than yourself, to not only look for your, or, uh, to your own interests but also in the interests of others. And we are all like that. We are all sinners. We all rebelled. We all offended God. We are all enemies of God. That's why the Bible calls us enemies of God. In Romans 5.10, he clearly says, But if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Romans 8 tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And because we're sinner, and because we're enemies of God, and because we're selfish, we are doomed to die. Romans 6.23 clearly states, the wages of sin is death. 
And this is in this example, in this negative example, they died physically. And I wish I could tell you that this has never happened, but I've heard testimonies, and I know that God is a holy God, and sin brings death. This is not something we see all the time, but we can't also rule it out. And I'm not trying to uh, instill fear because now we have Jesus as a representative. But we need to understand that God takes sin seriously to the point that he decided to send his only son to die for us to avoid us dying. And sin brings not only physical death, it also brings spiritual death. And sin separates us from Jesus, from God And if we continue to sin, and we live a life of sin, we will eventually end completely separated forever from God. This is what we call condemnation and eternal suffering in hell. But our sin also kills us today. Our sin, just like addictions and wars and abuses and homicides and many other things, also bring physical death now sin not only has eternal consequences sin also has current today immediate consequences and we need to know that sin is dangerous selfishness sin leads to death sin is a serious matter sin is something that god hates and we should do it too That's why the last part of this text makes a lot of sense. Verse 11 says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Because sin is dangerous. And our God hates sin. I want to remind you and I want to make sure that you hear me say that even though sin might bring momentary, momentary joy and pleasure, It will always kill you. Sin is a cruel master. Sin is a horrific master. At the end, all sin wants, Satan wants, is to kill you, is to destroy you. He wants to see you suffer. He wants to see you in hell. And this is important for us to understand because we have to take sin seriously as Christians. Let me read you um, <clears throat> something that reflects on the seriousness of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus gives us a command in Matthew 25 uh, and gives a parable that highlights one of the parameters that Jesus utilizes in a way to know whether we are saved or not. And it's precisely how we treat others. In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 33, Jesus says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. This is what's going to happen. And then he moves on to the bad, to the goats. In Matthew 20, at the end of that chapter, and he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. And listen to the criteria. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, 
and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it for to one of these, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And this will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When we are selfish, when we have the ability, like Ananias and Sapphira, to look around and just think of ourselves, we are sinning. And God takes that sin seriously. Our faith must be shown in works. But even more than just fearing sin, we must fear God. He is the only one who can condemn us to eternity, either separated from him or with him. And we should fear God. And I've heard people explain it in different ways. Well, it's not really fear. It's more like a respect. Well, it's not really fear. It's more like an admiration. And the reality is that it is not true. It's fear. We should fear God because as much as he's a loving God and because he's a loving God, he is a just and holy God. And he hates sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. We will not be with him if we have any sin. We are not able to stand before a holy judge like our God. And if we have sin, we're not going to be able to be there. Our God is holy. Our God is separated from everything and from sin. He lives in an entirely different category. We need to understand that we need to take sin seriously and fear God. In fact, Proverbs 9 says that the way to live a wise life is to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If we know that God is holy, if we know that God hates sin, if we know that God is a just judge, then we will have the appropriate understanding of sin. And we would hate it and fight it. And that's why the Puritans said, if you don't kill your sin, your, ki your sin is going to kill you. And it's not only physically, it's also spiritually. And if I stop right there, that's the perfect moralistic sermon ever. Because it makes you feel so guilty. And you should feel guilty. Because we are all sinners and we are unable to overcome our sin in ourselves. And you should feel that. You should know that on your own, you're going to hell. You are unable to overcome your sin on your own. But then we have God again coming and helping us and giving us Jesus. And he comes and says, I know it feels like you can't, and really, you can't. Let me help you. And this just God who hates sin and who punishes sin sends his only son to die for us and pay for our debt that we could ever, never, ever, ever pay. And this God who cannot be in front of filthiness and sin 
now washes us through the blood of his son, Jesus, and cleanses us. When he sees us, he sees a perfect person. You and I know that we're not perfect. You and I know that we sin on a regular basis. But when God sees us, he sees the blood of Jesus. He sees a person who has been washed by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And he says, I could be with you. Not because of you. Not because of what you do or what you've done, but because of my son. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Is that we no longer have to fear like Ananias or Sapphira. We don't have to try on our own. We don't have to try to show to people that we're better. We don't have to try to show to people that we're Christian or that we're actually good and virtuous. We don't have to pretend. We can be as filthy and as imperfect as we are and know that God accepts us because of Jesus, not because of us. That is the blessing of being a Christian. If you're not a Christian, the weight that you felt before of the sin and the difficult, you, how am I going to get this? How am I going to make myself better? It's impossible. You cannot carry your own sin on your own. You cannot. You're going to be crushed. It's going to kill you. And that's why God sent his son to die for us. And Jesus comes and takes it all away. And that's what makes us Christian. We're not better than anyone. We are just as sinful, but we are being washed away. And we're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. God is shaping us into the image of his son. And now we can stand in a church before God and say, you know what? That's really hard for me. I am greedy. God, forgive me. Help me. And that's okay. And through the blood of Jesus, we can now... We can now understand that we have received grace and give it to others. That is the message of the gospel. And that is why I love being a Christian. Because I cannot bear the weight of my own sin on my own. Or in any other religion. I cannot get steps to become a better person. I cannot. I lived like that for a long time and I was miserable. And I love the gospel. It's about Jesus. It's about what he did. It's about him, him doing everything I couldn't do. So that's it. And let's stand up and pray together. Dear God, help us be generous and help us understand that you take sin seriously. Help us live in light of the gospel. Help us know that you are a good God. Help us know that you have forgiven us through the sacrifice in the blood of your son. And I pray that that understanding will move us to be generous, to love others, to take sin seriously. And I pray that your spirit, your Holy Spirit will fill us and enable us to be the Christians you want us to be. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.